Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Five, four, three, two, one. Music. This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Greetings and welcome to your weekly dose of entertainment reviews. It is a segment that we call Movies First. It is me, Chris Coleman, and my very good friend, Alex First. Greetings to you, Alex. Sir, a pleasure to be with you. Are you a fan of Jonah Hill or do you think that he's over the top and some people sort of find him difficult to take? Look, I, I don't find him difficult to take. I wouldn't say I was a fan, but, you know, I, I, I can take or leave if, if that makes I reckon, sense. I reckon he's done some really good stuff. Moneyball, The Wolf of Wall Street. And here, he look, I think he goes up a stratus, he goes up a notch with War Dogs, which is one of the movies that I want to talk about today. I'm also going to talk to you a little bit later about a show that is making its Australian professional premiere that I saw only last night. So hot off the press, so to speak. So there are a couple of things. And then there's a movie that has got something in common with Jaws and Castaway. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a tease in terms of what's coming up. Well, let's start with War Dogs, shall we? Why don't we? Rated M in Australia, 114 minutes. This is a story so ridiculous, it could not possibly be real. But it is. It's from a director called Todd Phillips. He did the Hangover trilogy. I like the first one. Wasn't all that sold on number two and three. What about you? Uh, look, I, I, I watched the first one of the Hangover, and I, I'm not the target audience for it. So, you know, I, I see the, the, the appeal. I get, the, I get why it is popular with some people, but it was, was not my cup of tea. Fair enough. Well, he has done a comedic drama now based upon true events, notwithstanding the fact that they use composite characters and undoubtedly embellish. It stars Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. He was in a magnificent movie called Whiplash. Remember that won an Oscar as well, Whiplash? For yep. the lead, lead actor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Miles Teller was also in the Divergent trilogy. I reckon Miles Teller could have won an Oscar as well for his performance in Whiplash. But in this case, Jonah Hill and Miles Teller play mates in their early 20s. They reunite in Miami Beach after they actually hadn't seen one another since Hill left the neighbourhood in year 10 at school. So they were good mates then, but they really haven't sort of played together, so to speak, for quite a number of years. When they do reunite, Teller's at a loss with what to do with his life, and, and money has become a real issue for him. He's got a live-in partner, played by Anna de Armas, who becomes pregnant, and Teller is a massage therapist. He sort of takes his table with him and he massages people. Mm-hmm. It's a professional he gives up, wait for this, to try to sell high thread count cotton sheets to aged home care providers. Well, sure, that's a logical change of career. Well, he wanted to make more money. Unfortunately, <laughs> it doesn't kind of work, so the idea turns pear-shaped. Hill, on the other hand, appears to have the Midas touch. He, he deals in little-known military contact contracts with the US government 
during the Iraq war. Yes, there are contracts to be had, and he cashes in on them, and he's got more cash to splash around than he knows what to do with. This is the Jonah Hill character. And Jonah Hill offers Miles Teller in on his operation and a 30% cut of his business. And, of course, they're mates. The business also has a silent partner. Who's a, there's a bloke who owns many dry cleaning outlets. I, I believe they said 14 of them. So, no, that, that, that's mm-hmm. not bad. That's a few. And, yeah, and, I mean, so he's the silent partner in this operation. Teller, by the way, a very quick learner. Before you know it, the pair's raking in big, big money and living the high life. While Teller has his initial observation about selling armaments for war, he overcomes that, but he decides not to be so forthcoming with his girlfriend, which will inevitably lead to problems because the girlfriend is dead set against doing this sort of thing. Yes, so, you know, what, what she doesn't know won't hurt her is, is the philosophy that Miles Teller adopts. But, yes, it, it may come back to bite him on the bum. On the business front, all is looking rosy but is not without its hitches, which involve gun running and some rather hairy situations. It's only when Hill and Teller land this mega deal, though, that they find themselves in over their heads. Through it all, they wing it. They talk and they walk their way through potential problems with bravado and lies. That's how they get by. Hmm. The, the film also stars Bradley Cooper, who was in American Sniper, American Hustle, Silver Linings Playbook. He plays a shady arms dealer in the big league with whom Hill and Teller hook up. The screenplay is by Todd Phillips and Stephen Chin and Jason Smilovich, based upon an article written in Rolling Stone magazine, which is called Arms and the Dudes by Guy Lawson. And War Dogs reunites Phillips with several of his collaborators from the Hangover trilogy, including his director of photography, his production designer and his editor. Like The Wolf of Wall Street, War Dogs is all about talking big and excess. Everything is an illusion, and yet somehow this dynamic duo managed to get away with their shenanigans for so long. As I say, this is based on fact. All of this went down in the mid-noughties, so (coughs) not all that long ago. Quite funny, fascinating, engaging and compelling story with some excellent performances from the key players. Really strong. It's also got a good look to it, War Dogs. I'm talking about the locales shown on screen and the way they're presented. Jonah Hill channels his persona from The Wolf of Wall Street, while Teller is far more restrained. And I reckon Jonah Hill also has learned something from Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street mm-hmm. in this movie. But Teller's far more restrained, inevitably caught up in the madness of the situation. And Brad Cooper, well, he adds a touch of menace to his persona or with his persona. Rated M, War Dogs drew me in, kept me involved until the final credits, and I think most people are going to enjoy it. OK, give us a score for War Dogs. I'll give it 7.5 out of 10. OK. Next up on Movies First, uh, we're off to uh, in, a bit of indignation. A bit of indignation, yeah, why not? 111 minutes. I reckon if you get it, can get a one-word title, that's a good thing into a movie, don't you think? Because you're going to remember a one-word title more readily than most. But they Maybe also I lend themselves these days to the, the social media marketing uh, by, by having a one-word title, because they don't take up as much space in hashtags and so on. That's quite so, absolutely. So this one's rated M in Australia, 111 minutes. Go back to 2008. Philip Roth published his 29th novel, which is called Indignation. It's a story that returned him to his own youth. He grew up in Newark in New Jersey. Newark. Now, how do we pronounce it? Newark. Newark. Yes, we do. Newark. Newark. All right. Newark. Newark, New Jersey. 
That's it. Well done. And he attended a small liberal arts college. I'm talking about Philip Roth. And, of course, he's one of America's most honoured and accomplished writers. He received a, a Pulitzer Prize. And he was 75 years old when he turned back the clock. While details of this story roughly mirror Roth's life, it isn't exactly autobiographical. But, but the world of ideas that Roth wove together to create indignation nevertheless felt very personal and profound to the film's writer and director, a guy called James Seamus, who connected to the novel's reservoir of what he called empathy and elegy. So in adapting the book for the screen, Seamus turned to a couple of other literary figures of the late 20th century. One of them, Sylvia Plath, the other one, Allen Ginsberg. They were his inspiration. Both were contemporaries of Roth, but neither was directly connected with Roth's intellectual circle. It takes place, Indignation, in 1951, as Marcus Mesner, played by Logan Lerman, brilliant working-class Jewish boy from Newark, travels on scholarship to a small conservative college in Ohio. By doing so, he becomes exempt from being drafted into the Korean War, which is now in its second year. That's a war that hangs rather heavily over Newark. Mm. Before leaving to further his studies, Mesner works for his dad. His dad's a kosher butcher. And while he's loath to admit it, Mesner also looks forward to escaping his father's nearly obsessive concerns over his safety and fate. Obviously, with the war and people being drafted, etc., etc., that makes his father all that much more fidgety. Among the manicured lawns, the leafy paths of Winesburg College, Mesner takes his role as a student very seriously. With his academic pursuits and his part-time job in the college library filling his days, he's got little time, he's got time for little else, especially such obligations as the college's mandatory weekly Wednesday chapel. You can't graduate unless you've been to chapel on X number of occasions. That's mm -hmm. part and parcel okay. of the requirements. All that changes, though, when Mesner meets and goes on a date with a rather forward classmate in Olivia Hutton. Olivia Hutton is played by Sarah Gaydon. You wouldn't be wrong in saying that Hutton turns his head, but her history is a checkered one and his natural conservatism holds him back. Theirs is bound to be a relationship that's far from easy. Add to that the fact that Mesner has attracted the wrong kind of attention from the college's imposing dean, played by Tracy Letts, with whom he clashes, then you come to realise that Mesner's bright future is far from assured. Indignation is a dramatic coming-of-age story that does not follow a conventional path. It's not a happily ever after tale, rather a journey of substance and pathos, one in which a free and forward-thinking young man's aspirations are derailed due to circumstances that appear to conspire against him. I thought Logan Lerman was terrific, ever so compelling as the respectful but determined centrepiece tripped up by fate and feminine wiles. Hutton's forthright charm and sex appeal inevitably have him returning for more, and Sarah Gaydon's insights into her character's strengths and vulnerabilities make her a force to be reckoned with. Both of them were really outstanding. The first confrontation between the Dean and Mesner in the Dean's office is excruciatingly drawn out, but then that sense of an ordeal was arguably the director's way of us, the audience, feeling a little of how the character does, deeply frustrated. goes on this one scene for more than ten minutes. You rarely see that in a movie. That's but incredible. It was, yeah. it, it was. It was essential to the way the movie was told. I thought the filmmakers did an excellent job also recreating the look and feel of the early 50s, Chris, and the social mores that were pervasive at that time, the, the sort of button-down look. And uh, it, it, it really 
worked its, its way through your psyche while you were sitting there watching this. You, you got carried back in time. It's a really intelligent, thought-provoking movie, Indignation, really strong, and, and it, it is adult entertainment. So be prepared. The ride is... It, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's not an easy ride to take, but it's a really worthwhile movie. It's called Indignation. OK, so a score for Indignation? Uh, seven and a half to eight okay. out of ten. Now we're going to something a bit different. Uh, it, it's sort of drama, it's sort of thriller, it's sort of horror. Uh, and if that makes you think, well, Jaws or The Deep, uh, it, I, I suspect we're probably not too far from the right path. Indeed you are so. And, and you can add Castaway and All Is Lost, you know, that Robert Redford single-hander yep. involving the Blake. Of Wasn't that one of the, the best other. films you've ever seen? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. I... I, I couldn't believe because Robert Redford of late hasn't done a lot of stuff that I, I can really point my finger at and say, isn't that brilliant? This was the exception. I thought he was wonderful in this. And he, I actually think he should have been nominated for an Oscar. The shallow. I, I think he should have been nominated for Best Picture. Probably both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. What they did with one person stuck in the middle of the ocean was extraordinary. Yeah. And, and it had something in common with. Tom Hanks in, in Castaway, didn't it? It did, it did. I, I actually enjoyed All Is Lost more than I enjoyed Castaway. Oh, OK. Yeah. Good, good man. Well, th this story that I'm talking about, which is a bit of Jaws, a bit of Castaway, a bit of All Is Lost, uh, The Shallows, rated M in Australia, mm. only 86 minutes. I reckon it's a glorified telemovie with a name star <laughs> at the centrepiece, namely Blake Lively. When a hungover girlfriend bails on her, Lively decides to go surfing by herself on a secluded, pristine beach in Mexico. Now, little does she know, the great white shark has also singled out this area as a feeding ground. Oh, why not? <laughs> well, yeah, lively stranded only a couple of hundred metres from shore, but it's still going to prove to be a bit of a test of, of will to see whether or not she can survive, because mm -hmm. arguably man's greatest predator stands in her way. So it's going to require ingenuity and fortitude, all the more so because we just know that there will be casualties, Chris. Lively is or her characters, at a crossroads in her life. She's seeking solace after her mother's death. And though she's been this driven medical student, she's now found some measure of peace on a surfboard. Further, the secret beach that she's discovered was a rather special place for her mum. So Lively, I reckon, does the best she can with what she has to work with. The material, though, not totally engaging or enthralling. I, I found my mind drifting a bit as... It, I wasn't sold on the plot or the tension mm -hmm. that it could have invoked, but it didn't. I, I only really jumped in fright once, perhaps to a significant, significantly smaller extent, a second time. Further, some nice picturesque vista cinematography, because the film was primarily shot on Lord Howe Island, which is about 600 nautical miles east of Sydney, and it really looked nice. But nice cinematography and ocean waves do not a grand story make. Obviously, given the material, the movie in large measure takes place within a contained space. Because there, there are a number of positive signs of rescue along the way, but given it's a film and that requires a certain length, we already know they'll be furfies. <laughs> so, also, by the way, instead of a volleyball named Wilson that we got in Castaway, here the screenwriter, the scriptwriter, Anthony Jaswinski, has introduced an injured seagull. Not Jonathan Livingston, but an injured seagull. It's got a, a bad wing. And Lively's character names the seagull Sully. 
Sorry, I was more convinced by Wilson. <laughs> Look, there's also there's a, a, a guy called Brett Cullen plays Lively's dad in a couple of scenes. I don't think I've, I've, I've seen a more lame acting performance, quite <laughs> frankly. It's almost embarrassing. It, oh, really? I mean, it's, it's done by the numbers. I reckon you and I, who are non-actors, could have done as well as Brett Cullen. I'm sorry, Brett. I'm sure you're a nice bloke, but no, nah, didn't win me over in this one. Directed by a guy who did a, a really good movie called Non-Stop. He, I, I probably mispronounced his name. First name is J-A-U-M-E, Wame Colette Serra. And I reckon The Shallows lives up to its title, Chris. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's nasty. <laughs> well, it's okay. It's all right. It's, yeah. Look, look. I mean, Blake Lively. I, I know she's very popular. What's the, what's the thing she's she's been in on TV? It was Gossip Girl, wasn't it? Yeah, she it was. was in, yeah, I know she's very popular. Will it appeal to to that to to, yeah, well, to, I mean, to, to her things, established audience, or is this something different for her? Well, no. Look, I, I I think those people who like Gossip Girl will enjoy her in this. I, I don't. I think she's done a really good job with mm-hmm. what she has to work with. She actually was commenting uh, today in the paper about the fact that. She did this role. She was in a bikini for most of this role, and she looks absolutely fantastic. She's somebody who's talked about body image, and she said, you know, she would have loved to have gone on and done it with cellulite, etc. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. I mean, it's, it's virtually, it's not quite a one-hander, but it is, you know, for large measure, a one-hander. And as such, she obviously had to work out, and or did decided to work out, and she looks absolutely extraordinary. But she she kind of thought that was going against what she speaks up for, which is, you know, people being real, and. Obviously, if you are, if you're an actor, or if you are, have got enough money, you can have your personal trainer in with you each day. Most people don't have that op- opportunity, do they? No, not so, really. You know, so I mean, I think she stands for the right, you know, for the right things, and but she just couldn't bring herself not to work out. So you know, if you're going to be in a bikini for sort of 86 minutes, then uh, and and people looking at you, she didn't want people going yeah. So look, it's it's okay. Five and a half out of ten. The shallows. Okay, but don't go along expecting it to be to be a high art, hey? No, exactly. No. Okay, well, let's ta- change tack and go to a live stage show. I'm I'm curious to hear about this one. It, it is, uh, I will confess, a work that I'm not terribly familiar with. No, but no, I'm, well, it... I'm very, and I think many other people will be familiar with the some of the other works by the writers, Candor and Ebb. Who... Yeah, well, well, John John Candor and Fred Ebb did yeah. Cabaret in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. So people will know those shows. They did Kiss of the Spider Woman as well. They did. Look, this is very different. This is at the State Theatre at Arts Centre Melbourne, and it is only on till, and this is really important that you got, get this, it's only on until the 28th of August, okay? So you've only got a few days to see it. It is a whodunit murder musical. Huh? <laughs> love Unlike, I love that. Yeah, unlikely combination, I grant you. And it's the, well, Australian professional premiere of this show. It's a parody of backstage homicide mystery plots. Curtains is based upon the original book and concept by Peter Stone. And I should say, Peter Stone died while this was being put together. He died in April 2003. It had its world premiere in Los Angeles in July 2006, before it opened on Broadway in March the following year. So Peter Stone died in 2003. He left the book unfinished and Rupert Holmes was hired to rewrite it. Fred Ebb, and I mentioned that this is a John Cander, Fred Ebb con- concoction, he passed away also before the musical was completed. So, yeah, 
And, I mean, this is what's even more bizarre. It involves murder. <laughs> but these two, I'm not saying these two were, people were murdered. They just, unfortunately, they passed away. So please don't get the wrong idea. But So it's a parody of backstage homicide mystery plot set in Boston in 1959 at the opening night of the cowboy musical Robin Hood of the Old West. That's Robin with double B. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yes, a cowboy musical. The, yeah. Anyway. Have you ever seen a cowboy musical? I'm just trying to... Oh, and you get your gun was one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, get this, Chris. Mm-hmm. A leading lady who has got no talent whatsoever is killed on stage during the curtain call. Oh, this is that's a great plot device. And the whole cast are immediately suspects. So think Agatha Christie here, right? Mm-hmm. This is a grand tribute to Broadway. It features a delightful assortment of colourful characters, including a very, very camp director, a bitter critic, boy, is he bitter, clueless investors and ambitious actresses. And it's up to a police detective who happens to love the theatre, is a theatrical wannabe, it's up to this police detective to save the show, solve the case and find true love. <laughs> if that isn't a script, I don't know what is. Oh, this is, this is sounding better and better as by, by the minute. Well, Simon Gleeson, the star of Les Miserables, he plays Jean Valjean, and also Chess, returns to the production company, because that's who's putting this on, as the multitasking cop, the centrepiece. And he's a huge success in that role. He brings the perfect blend of comedy, adoration and sleuthing to the part. And he wins no shortage of laughs from the audience. Alinta Chidzi, who's in many musicals, is the object of his affections. Lucy Maunder and Alex Rathgerber play Robin Hood's songwriting team until, that is, Maunder gets the tap on the shoulder to take to the stage after the leading lady is knocked off. Right, so she goes from being a songwriter, she used to be an actor, now she's an actor again. Melissa Langdon is unforgettable as the hard-nosed, brassy Broadway producer, the long-suffering wife of a pompous husband, a part taken by the star of Blue Heelers, John Wood. Yeah, he's in this one as well. There's a full cast of 27 people. No, not bad at all. Gee, that, that's, a, that's a lot of coordination for a live stage show. Well, they only had two weeks to rehearse, too. So, I mean, that's what the production company does. Well, I was looking this up. Do you realise that for the production company, if you are somebody who's reasonably youthful, if you're young and you're sort of trying to get into musical theatre, you can get anyone under the age of 18 can enjoy a show which is absolutely every bit as good as any other live theatrical show you're likely to see or musical for just $24, Chris. I mean, this is the State Theatre at the Arts Centre. This is great value. It's a great idea. Look, Jen Pratt introduced this 18 years ago and it has been a huge success. Three shows each year. And by the way, if you are an adult subscriber, you can pay as little as $42. So, I mean... These tickets normally are costing you 120, 130 bucks. So that's what Jean Pratt has done. She's made it accessible for everybody, and they have not used any government funding at all. And they do these shows brilliantly every year. And I mean, they've got some of the biggest name stars in the world of show business involved in them. So you know, it, it really is a feather in Jean Pratt's sort of cap that she's been doing this for as many years as she's been doing it. By the way, Melissa Langdon, I mentioned, is, is terrific as, uh, as the, the Broadway producer. I really liked her role. Much of the dialogue and storyline are downright hilarious. Large dollops of slapstick humour and hijinks. 
most of which I appreciated, although I can't say that I warmed totally to mixing a murder mystery with a musical. I found it a rather strange blend, mm -hmm. notwithstanding the efforts of Roger Hodgman, who used to be with the Melbourne Theatre Company, as director of this one, and he's done, I think he's done six shows now for the production company. Dana Jolly as well does a really good job as choreographer. Musical direction from John Foreman. But as an unashamed fan of musical theatre, I wasn't totally sold on the musical numbers either. So Curtains runs for about two and a half hours, excluding interval. It's engaging to a point, although it does have some flatter patches. It, I mentioned it sort of started in America in, in 2006, and it, it opened to mixed reviews, both in Los Angeles and to Broadway. And I reckon that word mixed best sums up my feelings towards it too. It's definitely fun, a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but I wasn't wholly enamoured. Okay. Are the songs good? I, I, because I, I, while you've no, been I, I, that's what I I had. Tr I, str I struggled with. Yeah. I wasn't sold on the musical numbers. Yeah. See, so, yeah, this, this this intrigues me because uh, in addition to I've, I've looked this up while you were talking. In addition to uh, cabaret, Chicago, etc., etc., um, I didn't realise. Oh, sorry, not sorry, I didn't realise, but I, I was thinking. I know there's something else that Candor had ever done. They wrote New York, New York. Mm. You know, mm. they, they I mean, turned look, out some great music. So to hear, oh, they the, had, look, I, I just I, there weren't there there weren't enough sort of huge chorus numbers that I really warmed to. I, they, they were okay. I mean, about half the songs I I thought were pretty good, and the other half I wasn't really sort of so taken with. What the, what the production company does is they combine really big shows, really well known shows, with those that perhaps are not quite as well known. So. I mean, you know, you've got things like West Side Story and Funny Girl this year. And then uh, you had the Australian premiere of Grey Gardens, I think that was last season or the season before. And then Nice Work If You Can Get It and now Curtains. So I think it's a good combination. And generally speaking, I love what they do. I, I, look, I thought this was good without being great. And I think the performers were great, but I don't necessarily – the concept was, was okay. I'm probably. I think a seven and a half out of ten is probably what I'll give curtains. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, which is not a bad score. It's not a bad it's, score. Yeah, it's, but not, it's not a nine or a ten. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, indeed. It means that there are better shows, but there are also far worse shows around. Exactly. There we go. Like we need to explain what seven and a half out of ten actually means. No, but, no, yeah. but it's always good for those people who may not be paying attention. I, 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 I like where your mind's at, so that's why. <laughs> And we'll do it all again next week, Chris, shall we? We'll, we'll, we'll have some more entertainment. Indeed we shall. Thank you very much, Mr First. My pleasure. Good to speak to you, Mr Coleman. And uh, keep on listening out to, well, we do a couple of podcasts, don't we? We do movies first. And for those people who like travel, you might want to check out Travel First. And uh, Chris and I do it in a slightly different fashion. Indeed we do. Thanks, Alex. Catch you next week. Bye now. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.